Good morning. It is really great to be back with you. I want to give my personal thanks to Steve for covering me last week and Kevin as well. Uh, they uh, heard that they did a great job and I praise the Lord for these good and godly folks who surround us in ministry here. I also want to just thank you for your generosity. I've never known a more generous people. You demonstrated that so clearly in our ministry called The Gift. Through your giving and your participation, I don't know if you thought about this, but on that afternoon when we distributed The Gift, your cooperation, your ministry, your giving allowed us to be in somewhere in the neighborhood of 225 homes. And to go into each one of those homes and to share just that God loves them, that we love them, and to do that in a tangible way. And your participation was just fantastic. So I want to thank you and I want to give the Lord praise for moving your heart to be so generous in time and with your material goods. I praise the Lord for you. As we move into this next section of Scripture, I want to give um, sort of a a thank you to a pastor that I've been listening to who's helped me with summarizing some of the things that we're dealing with now. His name is Tim Keller. If you ever get a chance to listen to him, I think you'll be nourished or edified or encouraged by the messages that he gives. And a lot of what we're doing today, I was helped by Tim Keller in his presentation on a similar topic. So as we jump in, I want to ask you first just a question and sort of let you answer in your heart, or maybe you could give a nod, but do you like to be right? Now the giggles tell me something. Do we like to be right? We do, don't we? It is sort of a fundamental human need human wiring. It is hardwired in us to want to be or to seek to be right. Um, Have you ever argued because you thought you were right? There's more giggles. Okay, some husbands and wives may be giving each other a little look right now and parents and children going, we've been there. We want to be right. It's a fundamental desire hardwired into us by our Creator And it connects us to others. When we feel that we're right, it gives us a sense of acceptance. It makes us feel approved. It makes us feel that we've been received by someone or something. How do you feel when you're wrong? What's that feel like? Some of you are saying, I've never been wrong. I don't know what that feels like. So, so you're asking me just a weird question. But, but seriously, how does it feel when you, you know you're wrong? What's that feel like? Deep down in. Is that a feeling that we like? It's not. In fact, we battle it, if at all possible. We try to never have to feel that way. In fact, have you ever known you were wrong and still protested that you were right? Now, I'm seeing some people looking around at each other. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever, you just knew 
that you were wrong, but you weren't for the sake of argument and maybe saving face. You just went ahead and you, you argued that you were right and you kept on. Have, have you ever done that? If you've done that, raise your hand for a second. Okay, it's fairly common among us to so want to be right that not only we have the desire to be accepted and approved, to be received, to be connected, that we will argue it because we hate the feeling of being wrong. When we're wrong, we feel distance, we feel unaccepted, unapproved, we feel even rejected. And we don't like the feelings of rejection. Now, I want you to think about several different examples and see if you can see what they all have in common. Um, A little girl passes a note, and George Strait recently wrote about this. How many of you have heard the Check Yes or No song? That's a cute song. It's really sweet. I'm not really big into country music, but that song's just precious. A little girl writes a note to a little boy, I like you, do you like me, check yes or no. Okay, she's just handed that note off. A nursing student has just taken the NCLEX National Council licensure exam and they're waiting on the results. A man who has just asked a girl he highly admires if she would go out with him. A lawyer who has just turned his or her case over to the jury. A student who has applied to a prestigious university. Now, at that moment, what are all these people having in common? What is it? They're waiting. They're waiting for a reply. They're waiting for a verdict. They're waiting on someone to reply to them, yes, you're accepted. Yes, you passed. Yes, I'll go out on a date with you. Yes, I like you. Yes, you won your case. They're all waiting on a verdict. And all of them have a sense of some form of anxiety because of some attachment to what they've done, whether it's the law case or whether it's the little simple yes or no, I like you note. This verdict, this approval, this acceptance is what we call being right. If I pass the test, I'm right with the nursing board, I get my license. If the little boy checks, yes, the little girl feels right with him, he's going to be sweethearts. If the girl says to the guy who asked her out, yes, I'll go, he feels right with her. If the acceptance letter comes from the prestigious university, it says yes. The verdict is what we call rightness. It's that something is right between me and that thing And I like the feeling it gives me when it is so. That idea is what is behind the word righteousness in the Bible. When you read the word righteousness in the Bible, it comes from a same idea of rightness. It's where there is an approval or an acceptance And we are universally seeking it. All of us. 
There is no one here that is not in some form or another looking for rightness, desiring some kind of righteousness. This is what makes us, whether temporarily or eternally, feel good about ourselves and our condition. It's what gives a sense of true peace to a person's heart. And so, in reality, that's the theme of the Sermon on the Mount. The theme of the Sermon on the Mount is rightness, righteousness. It's mentioned all over the Sermon on the Mount. It's from the beginning to the end. And today we're hitting what is kind of a turning point in the Sermon on the Mount. So we need to look at that and look at it as a package, the whole introduction up to verse 20, as sort of a package about righteousness. So... Let's go to our Bibles in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start, number one, with the incomparable blessings of true righteousness. The incomparable blessings of true righteousness. When we come into... The Sermon on the Mount, we have the Beatitudes, and they are a list of blessings. Blessed are these people, and this is what they are blessed with. And so there's a list, and the list is a package. You can't have just one of these. The list is a package. It is the picture of a person who has been born again. It is the summary of the life of a Christian it is a portrait of someone who God has changed from the inside out. It describes a process as well as a product. The process is best seen in verses 3, 4, and 5 as the beginning of the process. What's going on in verses 3, 4, and 5? Well, you have, blessed are first those who mourn. This is the person who finally comes to the place where they see that their problems are beyond their own resources or abilities to resolve. That means resources are depleted, poverty of spirit. I have nothing from within me with which I can fix what is fundamentally wrong with me. And what's wrong with me is I don't feel right. I know something's wrong. Down inside me there is a longing and a desire. I can't always put my finger on it, but something's lacking, it's missing. And I understand that I don't have the resources inside of me to do something about it. And so I am broken, I am poor in spirit. That moves into verse 4 where, what do I do with that? I mourn over it. I am sorrowful. I see now that not only do I not have the resources to fix my condition, I see that I am the cause of it. And this is important. Some may come and say, I'm poor in spirit. Look at what everybody's done to me. That is not what verse 4 is referring to. The morning that is here is when you and I, in knowing our spiritual poverty, our 
the fact we're broke spiritually, the fact that, that we're bankrupt spiritually, we have no thing inside of us with which to fix what is wrong with me, then we realize what is wrong with me was caused by me. It is not that I was sick and therefore became a rebel. It was that I was a rebel and therefore I became sick. And so it's rooted in a rebellion within me against God. And that's why I mourn. Because I'm the cause. From there, something can happen. It can go off the rails easily at this point because all of a sudden a person can say, oh, I see the poverty of spirit. I have no resources. I see that I'm the cause. But now, here's the danger. I'm going to find something in this creation that will resolve this feeling. I'm going to reach out for something that is made to fix what is wrong with me. If you were in Sunday school today, you'll know that our Sunday school lesson was talking about this. Solomon, who had this sense that something was deeply wrong, started accumulating all these things to himself, trying to fix that sense of wrongness. And he accumulated pretty much everything you could accumulate. And in the end, he said, still have that feeling, still have that sense that I am not right and everything is vain. And so it can run off the rails here. And what you may do at this point is that you may try to search for something inside or outside. Some system of approval inside of you, some list, some rule, some standard that you will say, I'm going to try harder. I have this feeling of inferiority. I have this sense of spiritual poverty. I have this knowledge that I'm the cause. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps and I'm going to try harder. That is not the point that Jesus wants us to move here. Then we move into verse 5 and meekness. When this person comes to the point of spiritual poverty, when this person comes to the point of mourning, and rather than reaching inside for something inside, some internal standard or mechanism, they start reaching outside, they may grasp hold of something external, and they may surrender themselves to it, but it still not be the right thing. Meekness is when I say, I can't do this under my own authority or control. I must fully submit myself to someone or something else. And so often we go off the rails here by putting our anchor in another human being or set of human beings or some job or some relationship. And we think this is the thing that's going to fix my physical, my, my spiritual poverty. This is the thing that's going to fix my mourning. This is, I'm going to submit myself to this relationship, to this job, to this pursuit, to this delight. I'm going to submit myself to this feeling, to this high. I'm going to submit myself to this thing. Meekly, I'm going to come under it and it is going to guide me. But the truth is, is no temporal thing will ever guide you to satisfaction. No temporal being. No temporal possession. No temporal relationship can guide you to the place of satisfaction. That's when we go into verse 6, what does it say? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
Now there's a thing going on here that's very important. The word hunger and thirst here is not that passing feeling that you get when you go by Popeye's on your way home today. Okay? It's not that little bit of longing if the sermon gets to 12 o'clock where you're saying, oh, my stomach's rumbling a little bit. No, no, no. The words for hunger and thirst here are, are much greater than that. They're the, they're the starvation, thirst to death kind of terms. They're the, they're the desperation things. Now, at this point, I need to draw together several things in this message that they're, they're going to be, they are to me at least, a little complex, but I think we can work them together I left us in our last message, and I left off on a point that I didn't talk about, the very last point, two Sundays ago. And it was that our eternal reputation was tied to how we handle the law and the prophets. And that's found, if you'll come with me to verse 17 of Matthew 5, and I'm hoping this jump. I'm hoping we, I, I won't lose my own thinking in this. My brain's still a little bit foggy from the flu, so I, I think I can bring these together. Do not think, Jesus says, that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, the smallest letter or stroke shall, uh, shall, shall not pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. That's their eternal, okay, that's their eternal reputation. How people are going to talk about you in heaven. Okay, that's going to be a long time. <laughs> how people talk about you on earth is not going to be a long time. But how people are going to talk about you in heaven is going to be a long time. That's a forever conversation. It says, whoever annuls these and so teaches others shall be called least. And whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great. Now why? Why is it a big deal how we handle the law and what we say about it and why we don't negate things and, and try to relieve people and their conscience by, by dumbing down the law or the requirements for righteousness? Here's why. God wants to get every human being to a place of desperation. That's His desire. That's His design. He wants to get you to the place where you are finally starving for righteousness. Where you are finally thirsting so bad that you have got to have it. He wants to get you to that place. You will only come to that place if the full weight of your sin under the law is realized by you. So if I start stripping away the law and saying, oh, that doesn't matter, and that doesn't matter, and that doesn't matter, what I'm doing is I'm trying to relieve the burden of your sin from you and to relieve the sense of desperation in you so that you can go on about life and feel okay without having these things resolved. That's what the Pharisees were doing in Matthew chapter 15. Go there. This is very important. Here's what they're doing. They're setting up a group of traditions that look like they're better rules and more rules to protect the rules, but they're really not. What they are is they're legal loopholes. They're trying to set up legal loopholes so the weight of the law would not weigh upon your heart, it would only weigh upon your body. That this is important. Jesus is going to make a distinction between how the law weighs on the heart and how the law weighs on the body. And so the Pharisees were very excellent at doing the things of the law that had to do with the body. But they were terrible at doing the things 
that had to do with the heart. So you have a conversation in Matthew 15. Listen to the conversation. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Now, Jesus was never one to kind of just beat around the bush and make small talk. He goes right for the spiritual juggler vein. He says, he answered and said to them, And why do you transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother, let him be put to death. That's a heavy thing. Do you understand the weight of that? That's a heavy thing. And what they were doing is they were taking that heavy thing of the law off of people by saying, wait, we've got a loophole that will keep you from having to take care of your aging parents and spending your savings on them. Here's the loophole. And then Jesus tells the loophole. But you say, verse 5, whoever shall say to his father or mother, anything of mine you might have been helped by has been given to God. In other words, I'm going I'm to commit it to the church. I want to keep it, but I'm going to commit it to the church. He says, he is not to honor his father or mother, and thus you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You are hypocrites. What's going on here? When we get to Matthew 5, and Jesus said he came not to abolish, but to fulfill, he wants you to feel the full weight of the law and your sin under the law until you come to a point of personal desperation. That is a necessity for your salvation. When you finally come to the place where you personally understand your spiritual poverty, you come to the place where you not only understand that spiritual poverty, but you move from there and you mourn because you know you're the cause of it. And then from there you move into meekness that you say, I can't fix this myself. I have to surrender myself to something. And then in the next one, hungering and thirsting for righteousness means you're going to submit yourself to God for it. You're going to turn now to God and you're going to be desperate before Him asking Him, Oh God, I don't have this. Now let me give you an illustration of how that worked out in my life at one point. This is not about my testimony, but about an event that occurred several years ago. We were getting ready to go to Ecuador. We were packing up and we have kind of a system that we've learned over many years of not doing things really well. We've kind of developed a system to help us do well. And one of those systems is we have this mechanism of doing passport checks. And so uh, when we first start our training, you get a passport, you bring it in, we photocopy it, we put it on file, we put it in with your application. All right, that's great. And then the night before we go on the trip, everybody brings their passport, we view it and make sure the dates are good on it because we've had people show up before with uh, passports that were going to expire while they were away and so they couldn't go and all these different kinds of things. And folks who said, yeah, I'm sure I've got it, but didn't have it. And then the final check is on the morning of the trip when we're getting ready to go. As you get on the bus, you have to open your passport and show it to a person so that they know, okay, you're good to go. You can get on the airplane. Well, we were all good to go, and we're getting everybody ready, and everybody's loaded, and I make sure I pick somebody other than myself to do this checking. So Lydia Garza, Lydia, you're here today, aren't you? Lydia comes to me and says, hey, Bart, show me your passport. I said, cool. I unzip my little fanny pack that I carry on the trip, and guess what's not in there? My passport. Now, I have a rule. And the rule is, is that when we're going on a mission trip, the bus leaves at the appointed time, and there's no, there's no way, way around it. So guess who didn't catch the bus to Houston? I didn't. That team had to leave here without me on the trip to Ecuador, and I was here doing what? 
Okay, now, I had a sense of desperation that was brand new to me. I was going nuts. I went in and tore my office apart. I said, surely I dropped it in there. I emptied my backpack out. I emptied my fanny pack out and all that stuff that had been packed up. And what a mess, okay? It's not there. Go through my car. Tear it apart. It's not there. I mean, I am desperate. What made that desperation come in? Because somebody checked me before I got to the gate to make sure I was ready to get on. Here's what the law does. The law checks you for your righteousness to see if you're going to go to heaven. It checks you. And Jesus wants the full weight of the law to rest on you so that a newfound desperation comes. Because until I knew my passport was missing, I was going on my merry little way headed to Ecuador. But what was going to happen when I got to the desk to check in to the airline? What was going to happen? I was going to be refused. And so, I had a newfound passion for finding my passport, and I tore everything apart, and I finally found it. It was laying on my recliner, and my recliner is the same exact color as the cover of the passport. So it took a long time for me to finally find that. But I'll tell you, my family searched with me. I searched. We tore the house apart. And finally I found it. And Josh picked me up. Josh Dixon picked me up and carried me very fast until we caught the bus at one of the stops on the way to Houston. And I got on and I was able to go. Listen why Jesus does not want you to go around lowering the standard for righteousness. Because God's standard of righteousness was created to make a sense of desperation so that you would quit looking inside you for the answer and you would quit looking in humanity and created things for the answer and that you would turn and you would look to God for the answer. God wants you to be that desperate about your salvation. And so the goal of the law is to bring you to Jesus Christ. It is not to put you on a course of self-improvement. It is to say to you, there is one standard, and that standard is absolute perfection. And you must come to a place of spiritual poverty knowing you don't have it. Mourning, know that you're the cause of it. Meekness, knowing you can't resolve it. And desperate hunger and thirsting to latch onto it from a source that is found only in God Himself. And so when we started, we talked about the incomparable blessings of true righteousness. These blessings are these things attached at the end of all of these things. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These are the guys going. But not just these, these who have this whole package. Blessed are those who mourn. They'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek. They shall inherit the earth. They don't have to worry about what they own now. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. And so, here's what's happening. Everyone who's outside of Christ is going through one of two kinds of struggles for righteousness. Tim Keller calls it the overt and the covert. The overt is the weight of the law has finally sat upon you. 
Two Sundays ago, a dear friend of mine sat at our table eating dinner with tears running down her cheeks in front of my family and our friends gathered for dinner as the weight of the law settled in. Jesus wants us to get to that place of overt, total desperation. But there are many that are functioning with covert desperation. They're trying to get a sense of right covertly through something that they bought, something that they own, something they received, someone that they have a relationship, some child they bore, some spouse they have, some parent that they treasure, some job, some award, some sports, some kind of thing. But it's covert. We never tell on ourselves while we're looking, but we're looking. And we want to be satisfied. And we want to be happy. And we want to be secure. And so covertly we're looking. But the broken person before coming to Christ is the overt person who begins this desperate search. So what happens? Well, I need to bring our outline together and then bring us to a close. The second part is the undeniable responsibility of true righteousness. In the second section of Matthew 5, there's this section about you being the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Here's the deal. Whatever gives you your ultimate satisfaction is going to be the thing that you will give glory to. Listen. Whatever gives you your ultimate satisfaction is what you're going to give your glory, your time, your attention, your energy, It's the thing that you're going to glorify with your life. When Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven, just a little bit later in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Here are two places that Jesus wants men to notice our activities. But one is to His glory, because why? That righteousness and sense of well-being came from God, so I give Him the glory. But listen, my brothers and sisters, if we think our righteousness comes from us or from something else, on earth, that's what we'll give the glory. That's what we'll pay attention to, give our money, time, and emphasis, and and energy to. That's what's happening. And so this undeniable responsibility of true righteousness is that when we are really made righteous by faith in Jesus Christ, we will only give glory to one. And what we do will give glory to that one. It's just how things work. Third, in your outline, is the unalterable standard of true righteousness. That unalterable standard is what I mentioned, where the standard of the law is not changed, it's how it's fulfilled. We've been made clear. The Bible tells us. That by the deeds of the law, no one will be justified. And that the end of the law, the goal of the law, is faith in Christ. Now, how do I bring that together? I want to take you to Romans 10 to do so. And let you see in one snapshot how Paul summarized almost the whole Sermon on the Mount in a few sentences. 
He does so in the positive in one section, but he does so in the negative here. So come to chapter 10, and I think that this will bring us to a good conclusion. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, he's speaking of the Jews, is for their salvation. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Look at this next verse. It's, it's the Sermon on the Mount in a nutshell. First, for not knowing about God's righteousness. All of the legal loopholes and word twisting and word warping had made the Pharisees set up a standard of surface righteousness. A list of physical do's and don'ts that could be checked off so that in their heart they could say, I'm good to go. And from their friends they could hear, you're good to go. And they set the law up in ignorance of how righteous God really is by these legal loopholes that they set up to relieve the burden of the law from themselves. And so what happened is, is that they began functioning in ignorance of how holy God really is. And they did so with an excellent religion. A religion that spoke of God, that sacrificed to God, that talked in great length about God, that so-called honored God, that spoke kindly of God, that spoke praise to God, but was ignorant about the holy righteousness of God and how serious that righteousness is. And the result was what? Look at what comes after that. Not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish what? Their own. Here's what happens. When you are ignorant of how holy and righteous God is, as is clearly stated by His law, what you will do is dumb down your standards to a place where other people will approve of your dumbed down standards, and your own heart will approve of your dumbed down standards, and you will never become desperate for Jesus. And the result will be condemnation. Because you're ignorant of how holy God is, therefore how high His requirements are, and you're all the time building up your own righteousness through the opinion of other people and the opinion of your own heart. You're actually going to contact people and ask them to build up their opinion of you so that you can feel good about yourself. You will become dependent on the opinions of others to feel good about yourself. And you'll go to a group that will be at the level that you want to live. I got followed this week on Twitter by an atheist minister. He said that he's happily pursuing life without the need for God's. And so he's drawn to himself a congregation of like-minded people who will affirm him in his Ignorance. And affirm each other in their ignorance. And my brothers and sisters, it will doom their souls to hell. 
But do not think that that could not grow in our own hearts. In our own congregation, in our own groups, in our own families. Do not think it could not be absent from us. This unalterable standard of righteousness. What does Paul say there? For not knowing about God's righteousness, they dumbed Him down. And seeking to establish their own, they built themselves up. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. But verse 4 is glorious. For Christ is the goal of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. It is the place the law was taking you. What Jesus wants you to do is let the full weight of the law fall upon you to you to see the, the sin in your life, the spiritual poverty, to mourn, to become meek and know that you have to find it outside of yourself, then to hunger and thirst desperately that He would give it to you, and then as a gracious gift, guess what He does? He gives it. That's conversion. And so, the law is bringing us to see our need. But we close with number four, and and make this brief and tell you a story. The unexpected comparison of true righteousness. I think people were hoping that at this point Jesus was going to really diss the Pharisees and say, man, you don't don't need to do all this stuff that they're into. But he says something really shocking. Verse 20 of Matthew 5. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you're not going to heaven. Now, I don't know if that rocks you, but it should. Because these guys were on it. In terms of external righteousness, Paul said in Philippians 3, you could find no fault in Him. How many of us could pass that test? That in terms of external righteousness under the keeping of the law, no fault could be found. Paul said that was the way that I lived so that externally you could have no claim against me. The problem with the righteousness of the Pharisees is that it was all on the surface. And it was all about the self. You can just note that. It was all on the surface. It was all about the self. It did not go down into their heart. Now, to bring all this together, I want to I share with you a story that's kind of tough, but I think the story will help us see how this has to come to an end. It's in the book, Hope Has Its Reasons, by Rebecca, I think her last name is Pipperin. Here's what she says. Several years ago, I'd finished speaking at a conference... A lovely woman came to the platform. She obviously wanted to speak to me, and the moment I turned to her, tears welled up in her eyes. We made our way to a room where we could talk privately. It was clear that she was sensitive but tortured. She sobbed as she told me the following story. Years before, she and her fiancé, to whom she was now married, had been youth workers at a large conservative church. They were a well-known couple and had an extraordinary impact on the young people. Everyone looked up to them and admired them tremendously. A few months before they were married, they began engaging in the things that married people do. That left them burdened enough with a sense of guilt and hypocrisy. But then she discovered that she was expecting a child. You can't imagine what the implications would have been of admitting this to our church. To confess that we were preaching one thing and living another would have been intolerable. The congregation was so conservative and had never been touched by any scandal, we felt there wouldn't be any be able to handle knowing about our situation, nor could we bear the humiliation. So we made the most excruciating decision I've ever made. I had an abortion. Now, 
My wedding day was the worst day of my entire life. Everyone in the church was smiling at me, thinking me a bride beaming in innocence. But do you know what was going through my head as I walked down the aisle? All I could think was, you're a murderer. You were so proud that you couldn't bear the shame and humiliation of being exposed for what you are. But I know what you are, and so does God. You have murdered an innocent baby. Now she was sobbing so deeply that she could not speak. As I put my arms around her, a thought came to me very strongly, but I was afraid to say it. I knew that if it was not from God, it could be very destructive. So I prayed silently for the wisdom to help her. She continued, I just can't believe that I could do something so horrible. How could I have murdered an innocent life? How is it possible I could do such a thing? I love my husband. We have four beautiful children now. I know the Bible says that God forgives all of our sins, but I can't forgive myself. I've confessed this sin a thousand times, and I still feel such shame and sorrow. The thought that haunts me the most is, how could I murder an innocent life? Now, I want to stop in the story and share something with you that's really important at this point. In the Old Testament, one of the most heinous crimes was the sacrifice of children to idols, to Moloch. There was this heinous crime of, 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 of killing babies in the, in the name of this god Moloch. And, and the, the, the Israelites fell into that trap. My brothers and sisters, this girl is explaining something to us that we need to know. We will sacrifice anything to our idols. Before we get real critical of her, and I want you to hear the end of the story, before we get real critical of her and bow up, I want you to understand that when we set up an idol as a place of ultimate satisfaction and rightness in our life, we will kill anything to keep it. And please don't think yourself above her in this. And some of you who are here, you've been exactly where she is. And I want you to go on through this and listen to what God did in this moment. So I prayed silently for wisdom to help her. So this is Becky Pipperin telling about what she's about to say. She continued speaking to me. I just can't believe that I could do something so horrible. How could I have murdered an innocent life? How is it possible I could do such thing? I took a deep breath and said what I'd been thinking. This is Becky Pipperin speaking now. I don't know why you are so surprised. This isn't the first time your sin has led to death. It's the second. She looked at me in utter amazement. My dear friend, I continued... When you look at the cross, all of us show up as crucifiers. Religious or non-religious, good or bad, aborters or non-aborters, all of us are responsible for the death of the only innocent who ever lived. Jesus died for all of our sins, past, present, future. Do you think there are any sins of yours that Jesus didn't have to die for? The very sin of pride that caused you to destroy your child is what killed Christ as well. It does not matter that you weren't there 2,000 years ago. We all sent Him there. Luther said that we carry the very nails in our pockets. So if you've done it before then why couldn't you do it again? She stopped crying. She looked at me straight in the eyes and said, you're absolutely right. I've done something even worse than killing my own baby. My sin is what drove Jesus to the cross. It doesn't matter that I wasn't there pounding the nails. I'm still responsible for His death. Do you realize the significance of what you're telling me, Becky? I came to you saying I've done the worst thing imaginable, and you tell me I've done something even worse than that. I grimaced because I knew this was true, Becky says. I'm not sure that my approach would qualify as one of the great counseling techniques. Then she said, but Becky, if the cross shows me that I'm far worse than I've ever imagined, 
It also shows me that my evil has been absorbed and forgiven. (laughs) This is where Jesus wants us. He wants us to first see the horror of our own sin and what we have sacrificed to all of our idols. And after we see that and see the heinousness of what we have sacrificed to our own idols, then He wants to take us to the cross and show how there, in love, He absorbed everything we would ever do. I will never forget the look in her eyes as she sat back in awe and quietly said, talk about amazing grace. This time she wept not out of sorrow, but from relief and gratitude. I saw a woman literally transformed by a proper understanding of the cross. What was the change in this woman? I believe her deepest pain, even more than over her guilt and the death of her child, came from her deception. There were two parts to her deception. Why was she dismayed by what she had done? It arose from her thinking, how could someone as nice and as good as I do something so terrible? So the first change came from her basic understanding of herself. The second deception had to do with the nature of evil itself. Evil is hard to see because in its early forms it seems so innocuous and mundane. Who would have guessed that concern over what other Others think of her pride would have led to the death of her own baby. This is what Jesus is after. The reason he says that we cannot negate the full weight of the law is it has to rest on us. And we have to see the horror of our own lives and our own sin. We have to cultivate an environment where we can do that together where we can cultivate an environment to see the horror together, to call it out together, to work through it together for one purpose. And that is to drive men and women, boys and girls, in desperation to one place. We just want everybody to come to the cross. That's what we're after. And so here's what Jesus does. He says, if you think this external stuff that people see, that you sacrifice all your efforts to, is what's going to get you to heaven, I tell you that unless you surpass the external excellence of the Pharisees and scribes, you'll never get. How can you surpass the external excellence? By an internal change of your heart. By personally placing your faith in Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins. To believe that if the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, then the essence of salvation is God substituting Himself for man. That is what Jesus has done for you. And that is what He wants out of your desperation. He wants you to come to a place of true desperation where a starving hunger and a rabid thirst says, I can do nothing. I can receive nothing from any earthly or created thing. I can bring up nothing in me 
that can fix me with God. What God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, He condemned sin in the flesh. In order that we might by the Spirit walk not according to the flesh. Would you bow with me?